Greetings, and welcome to Etzheim's weekly podcast, recorded live in Richardson, Texas. We invite you now to join us for one of our synagogue's Shabbat messages. So the mic's working, okay. Shabbat Shalom. It's uh, great to be here, and I got to give a shout out to the worship team for making sure I got a little Paul Wilbur in this morning. Uh, Some songs, they just carry you. You know, and that's one of those songs that's been with me for uh, almost two decades now. But I'm excited to share this morning on a book my ministry recently published called The Biblical Feasts and the Return of Yeshua. That's the uh, Google Translate for the Messianic audience. But uh, I decided to go broader for the general audience. But... This is one of those topics for me that I've been thinking about this for a number of years, and I believe it's a, it's a central message. I've probably really been working on this message in this book, if you really want to put it all together, for almost 20 years, but I started writing it a little bit over a year ago, and it actually just came out on Wednesday, so I'll give you a little more details about how you can get it and where we're going this uh, morning as well, but... I wanted to frame our study this morning as we think about this topic. I wanted to frame it with something that Peter says in 1 Peter 1.13. He says, Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Could even just be translated keep sober in general. And fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Yeshua the Messiah. So notice Peter doesn't say, I want you to fix your hope completely on the next presidential election. Not that it's wrong to be involved in politics. I follow politics. I follow what's going on. He doesn't say, fix your hope on the day when you'll just make a little bit more money or you'll finally get a different job, though there's nothing wrong with getting a better job if you can. He doesn't say, fix your hope on the day when you can finally move out of your parents' house and be on your own, and all your problems will go away, (laughs) right? Or you'll just have new problems. He says, fix your hope completely on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Yeshua the Messiah. So he is saying that as believers, our hope should be fixed and focused on really what I would call the second coming and the return of the Lord and the return of Yeshua. That should be the guiding light. That should be the north star. That should be a constant reference point in our lives, even on a daily basis. I would say that Peter wants discipleship and how we follow Yeshua to be centered around this hope, this revelation that's coming to us. And there's a couple points there I just want to make on this one verse. One, he says, there's a revelation of Yeshua that's still coming. And this is the same word that you get in the book of Revelation when it talks about the revelation of Yeshua, and these are all the things he's going to do. So Yeshua has not even now been fully revealed And so when he came the first time, he actually came in a a way he was still concealed. He wasn't fully revealed. The full manifestation of Yeshua has not yet come to the world. But there is a day 
when he will be fully revealed. And the world and the nations and all of us in this room, one way or another, will fully understand the depth and the glory and the power of everything associated with him, his ministry, his second coming. But also Peter says there's grace that is coming to you when Yeshua comes back. So there's, it's not only about him, although it is, and I'm obviously not going to take anything away from Yeshua, but it's not only about him. There's grace that is coming to us. And so even though we could say now we've been saved by grace, we've experienced God's grace, there's a grace that's coming to us that we cannot even yet fully fathom. And what I want to do this morning is I want to talk about how the biblical feast, every single biblical feast, spring feast and fall feast, reveal Yeshua and give us insight into this revelation, but also how they, they speak to the grace that's coming to us and really in a tangible way, in more of a concrete way, with more detail, how the biblical feasts are connected to this right here and how the biblical feasts can help us do what Peter is saying we should do right here. And I want to give also a brief disclaimer. My ministry, I teach a lot on prophecy, and uh, you run into a lot of interesting views in the prophecy world, right? A lot of fringe stuff. I was looking at my book on Amazon uh, this morning and yesterday, and you know how on Amazon you can kind of see where the book is ranking, and you can see like what the sales are and how it compares to other books. So I put the book into the category of uh, Messianic Judaism on Amazon. And uh, it was right in between. One book was like the Antichrist, Alien, Vatican Agenda or something. And then the next book right above it was like Donald Trump and the Blood Moons. And I'm like, that's pretty much par for the course. I'm over here trying to be very like exegetical and get into the Bible commentaries and make sure all my interpretation is right on. And then you're just right there with some of this stuff that's, you know, it's out there. And that's not what Peter is saying. Peter isn't saying, fix your hope on the day when Donald Trump is riding in on a white horse on Rosh Hashanah with the blood moon overhead. Like, that's not the hope. (laughs) Although I have my views on politics. And the hope is not there's going to be an alien spaceship coming down. Although, who knows what could happen. I watch the news. That is not the hope. Some of these topics that kind of circulate at the popular level, that's not the hope. The hope is the revelation of him. It's the revelation of the king. And it's the grace that comes to us when the king is revealed. And the biblical feasts are there to bring us into a cycle of sanctified time that helps us enter into that hope. So I want to talk about that. And I need to start by talking about a, a problem when the feasts are often discussed that stop us from fully entering into this hope. I'm sure a lot of you have heard before that the first time Yeshua came, he fulfilled the spring feast, and now we're waiting for the fall feast to be fulfilled when he comes back. That's a pretty common view. I've read and skimmed probably dozens, if not hundreds, of books and articles and teachings on the feast. And I would say I probably hear this view 
in 98, 99-plus percent of teachings on the feast. Spring feast, Passover, Passover lamb, God's done with that. And now we're just waiting for the fall feast to be fulfilled. So that means Yeshua has to come back on Rosh Hashanah. And Okay. So as I've thought about this over the years and studied this and studied the Bible, I started seeing a number of passages that kind of revealed what I would call a glitch in the matrix. And if you know the movie The Matrix, it's one of the best movies ever made, honestly. Uh, But the idea, the premise of the movie is that everyone is living in this kind of computer simulation, right? And so everything they think they see, everything they think they experience, it's not actually real. They're just like plugged into a computer. So they're living in someone else's system, someone else's paradigm, someone else's framework, someone else's program. And there's one scene where the main characters are walking up a stairwell and uh, the main character, the hero, Neo, he looks across the stairwell and he sees this black cat walk by. And then he looks again and he sees it walk by again. And uh, he says, oh, deja vu. And all the, the people that are leading him, they say, deja vu. No, there's no deja vu. It's a glitch in the matrix. It means that something in the system was being changed or manipulated or updated. And so when you're doing theology and biblical studies, I'm sure many of you have experienced this. I'm sure that's why many of you are part of the Messianic movement. It's because when you look at how most people explain things or talk about things, you see all these glitches. It's like, eh, it's not quite right. Something's not quite right. I think I'm living in someone else's paradigm that I don't think reflects reality. And I would say to you that on the biblical feast, on this topic, We've kind of been living in the matrix. We've kind of been living in a false paradigm that's not actually biblical. There's pieces of it that are biblical, but the the whole thing about how we're thinking about fulfillment of the feast is not actually biblical. It's It's a theological construct that was really produced, invented, you know, in the 1900s and has become popular. And what I'm trying to do, not because I want to be controversial or, you know, show everyone how smart I am, whatever. What I'm trying to do is I'm trying to give a new system in this book and in my my ministry. Uh, I'm trying to give a new way of looking at it that I think will ground us. And so I want to start by just talking about a couple passages that started making me think that maybe there's more going on than what we often hear. And the first was Luke 22, 15 to 16. I used to go to churches and do Passover seders, and I'd always see Luke 22, 15 to 16. Yeshua says the night before he's crucified, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I shall never again eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. So he doesn't say Passover is fulfilled tomorrow when I'm crucified as the lamb, as important as that is. He places the fulfillment. And what we mean by that word is Passover being filled up with its deepest level of prophetic significance and meaning. Passover is fulfilled in the kingdom of God when he returns. That's what the kingdom is. So he's looking for a future fulfillment of Passover. And I don't have time to go into all this today. We'll touch on Passover in a minute. But my first book, The Passover King, was really just a full, detailed, 350-page exploration of this verse and why Yeshua said that. 
And there's another verse too, Colossians 2, 16 to 17. Paul says, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day, things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Messiah Yeshua. And that phrase, I'd see that, these things, these festivals, and Paul doesn't discriminate. He doesn't discriminate between spring or fall. He just says all of them, the Sabbath, the festivals, all of it. They're a shadow of what is to come. And if you study that phrase, it's a Greek phrase that is often used in context when the New Testament writers are talking about the age to come, the second coming, the return of Yeshua. So Paul is really kind of, you could say, riffing right off of what Yeshua is doing in Luke 22. And he's saying these things are a shadow of what is to come. And I don't want you guys to get so caught up in a lot of the legalistic debates and stuff. It's not wrong to celebrate them, but I want you to stay focused on Yeshua when you celebrate the feast. And I want you to understand how the substance of Messiah is revealed in these things. So what we'll do is I want to go through, I'm going to group it into five. I'll put Passover, unleavened bread, and first fruits together. But I want to go through and kind of distill uh, the message of my book into the rest of this drosh and talk about how the biblical feast, they really reveal a sequence of fulfillments that will take place when Yeshua returns at the time of the second coming. And then I want to touch on why this is so practical and important for us to understand as a messianic uh, community. So you start with Passover. It's the spring feast. We know it in the first month. And I also want to say, if, if there's anything I touch on here, and, and you're thinking, oh, I wish he would elaborate more on that, or what about this? This is like shameless plug for the book. A lot of it's in the book, but I'll compress it. So if you have more questions, I'd encourage you to get the book, but I'll try to summarize. You think about Exodus, and we often think about redemption. This is the time when God came to redeem Israel, and the lamb is there, and we know that, and unleavened bread. But if you read Exodus, what's actually happening in Exodus, it's actually a warfare text. The central theme of Exodus from the Passover through the Passover story is actually warfare, spiritual warfare. And the reason the Lord uses these plagues, rather than just snapping his fingers and delivering Israel, he uses the plagues because in the ancient world that was inhabited by Israel, there were a lot of myths and stories of divine warriors using the forces of nature on the battlefield. Now, obviously, a lot of these myths, like Babylonian myths and stuff, they're not true. I'm not saying I believe they are true, but they set a cultural context for reading the book of Exodus and understanding what's happening there is that the Lord is going to battle against his enemies. And there's even the, the verse that says he will judge the gods of Egypt. So God is doing warfare and he's manifesting himself in such a way that the Israelites would understand that he is the ultimate supreme divine warrior who is vanquishing his enemies on the battlefield, who is trampling on his enemies. And this is why they say when they cross the Red Sea in Exodus 15, the Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. 
So after they come through the Red Sea, they understand Adonai, he is the warrior. He is the king. He has destroyed his enemies. He has fought against the powers of darkness and prevailed. And in that, we have been redeemed. And the Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. And so when you start thinking about, okay, Yeshua talking about Passover being fulfilled in the kingdom, what's he saying there? Why is he talking about a future fulfillment of Passover? He's talking about a future fulfillment of Passover because there's a whole constellation of texts in the Hebrew Bible that I would call these second coming divine warrior texts. They're all these texts, many of them. We'll look at one in just a second. And all these texts say that when the Messiah comes back, he's actually not going first to Jerusalem, believe it or not. He's actually going to march through the desert as a second Moses, as a greater Moses. And he's going to deliver Israel, the scattered remnant. He's going to deliver his people. And Yeshua is coming back as a man of war. He's coming back to defeat his enemies on the battlefield. He is the lamb, but he is also the lion. He is the redeemer. He redeems us through his blood, but he will ultimately redeem us. The hope that we have that we're supposed to fix our hope on is the day when he comes back as this great Passover warrior doing many of the things that took place in the book of Exodus. And actually the book of Exodus itself, it's actually a prophecy. The whole thing is prophetic. The plagues, the deliverance from Egypt, the journey through the Red Sea. This is all going to recapitulate again when Yeshua comes back. And that's what he's talking about in Luke 22. He's looking forward, not necessarily to the crucifixion, because that was a rough day for him, to say the least. You know, he's looking forward to saying, I'm coming back as the divine warrior. I can't wait to eat this with you in the kingdom after it's fulfilled, after I vanquish my enemies. So I want to read one of the central divine warrior texts that talks about this second exodus in Habakkuk 3. And before I do, I need to say a brief word about the Hebrew perfect tense, which is kind of like our past tense, but it's not exactly the same thing. A lot of times when you're reading these prophecies, you, you see things that are translated with the past tense, right? But the way the perfect functions in Hebrew is it's actually a completed action from the vantage point of the speaker. So just like you would describe if you saw something in a dream, you might use the past tense. The prophets often use the perfect tense when they're talking about something that's future, but they see it like in a vision or a dream, so they sort of refer to it in the past. But this is a future vision, and when we read this, you'll see this has never happened, even though some commentators are like, what in the world is Habakkuk talking about? This is all just stylized, symbolic language. You'll see this, like this stuff has never happened. This is about Yeshua. So here it says, God comes from... Timon, and the Holy One from Mount Paran. And this is going to be the southern desert regions uh, south of Israel, what we would call Edom, parts of Saudi Arabia, North Africa, maybe little bits of Sudan in this passage. But just think about south of Israel, North Africa, southern desert area. His splendor covers the heavens. Who does that sound like? Who's coming back with splendor from the heavens? And the earth is full of his praise. His radiance is like the sunlight. He has rays flashing from his hand. And there is the hiding of his power. So Yeshua coming back doing some kind of like street fighter 
You know, you ever play Street Fighter when you were a kid? It was like a fighting game, and like all this fire would fly out of people's hands. Before him goes pestilence, and plague comes after him. So what does that sound like? Where, where do you get the plagues? Yeshua coming back with pestilence and plagues, defeating his enemies. He stood and surveyed the earth. He looked and startled the nations. Yes, the perpetual mountains were shattered. The ancient hills collapsed. His ways are, way, are everlasting. I saw the tents of Kushan under distress. The tent curtains of the land of Midian, that's like Saudi Arabia, were trembling. Did the Lord rage against the rivers? Or was your anger against the rivers? Or was your wrath against the sea? Ever heard about God doing something with the sea in the book of Exodus? That you rode on your horses, on your chariots of salvation. You ever read in Revelation about Yeshua riding on a horse? Where do you think John's getting that? Your bow was made bare. The rods of chastisement were sworn. You cleaved the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and quaked. The downpour of water swept by. The deep uttered forth its voice. It lifted high its hands. Sun and moon stood in their places. They went away at the light of your arrows, at the radiance of your gleaming spear. In indignation, you marched through the earth. In anger, you trampled the nations. Has that happened yet? Remember that part in Exodus where it's like, no, nothing here has happened yet. You went forth for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You struck the head of the house of evil defeating the powers of darkness, defeating the Antichrist, his armies, to lay him open from thigh to neck. So I know this is a little bit heavy for a Saturday morning. (laughs) Maybe not. Maybe not if you're in my world. I think about this stuff all the time. But somehow what I just read to you is the grace that you're supposed to be fixing your hope on. Somehow, in the challenges of life and in the difficulties of life and the disappointments of life and the fragility of life and the pain and the medical diagnoses and the financial collapse and the wars and rumors of wars, somehow, Peter is saying, I want you to fix your hope on the day when Yeshua comes back and fulfills Habakkuk 3, I want you to know that there's a great divine warrior who has all of this in the palm of his hand. And he holds the authority to open the seals in Revelation, which means he holds the authority over all of world history. That's what Revelation is about when he breaks the seals. It's saying he holds the authority over all of history. He can open the seals because he's the lamb who achieved this place, who, let me say, achieved the ability to be able to come back and do all of this when he returns. This is what he purchased for himself with his life and his resurrection. And there are so many other texts we could get into. I would love to get into them. So it's it's a call for hope, but there's also kind of like a, Make sure you're on the right side of this thing when it goes down. Like, make sure you're walking with the Lord because, you know, there's no second chances when this stuff goes down. 
let's look at the Feast of Weeks, which would be the next feast, according to Paul, that would be fulfilled in the kingdom. And we've all heard that the Feast of Weeks was fulfilled when the Holy Spirit was poured out on the day of Shavuot, Pentecost, Book of Acts, Great Revival. And Peter quotes even from some Feast of Weeks passages I'll put up in just a second. But really, the Feast of Weeks is pointing forward to what happens after Yeshua comes back, fulfills Passover as this great divine warrior. The Feast of Weeks was the central or one of the central harvest festivals in the spring that kind of flows out of first fruits. So you have Passover, unleavened bread, first fruits, and then 49 days later, seven weeks later, is the Feast of Weeks. And it's this time of great harvest. So when Yeshua comes back, there will be a great harvest from the nations. And actually, not everyone, you'll see Isaiah speaks of survivors, not everyone will be totally destroyed. There will be a remnant of Jewish people, Israelis, people from the nations who will be gathered to Israel. And it's kind of like a fulfillment of the Feast of Weeks, although it's not like wheat from the ground. It's like the people. So I want to read you from Isaiah. The time is coming to gather all nations and tongues, and they shall come and see my glory. I will set a sign among them and will send survivors from them to the nations. Tarshish, Put, Lud, Meshech, Tubal, and Javan to the distant coastlands that have neither heard my fame nor seen my glory. And they will declare my glory to the nations. Then they shall bring all your brethren from all the nations as a grain offering. It's the same word that is used in Leviticus 23 for the Feast of Weeks offering. They'll bring your brethren from the nations as a grain offering to the Lord on horses and chariots and litters on mules and on camels to my holy mountain, Jerusalem, says the Lord, just as the sons of Israel bring their grain offering in a clean vessel to the house of the Lord. So all Yeshua comes back, leads this second exodus, redeems the first fruits of Israel. We will obviously be there, but then there's a a greater gathering from the nations That is the prophetic fulfillment of the Feast of Weeks. And then, of course, the Feast of Weeks is closely associated with the Holy Spirit. But what happened in Acts 2 on Pentecost, it was actually only a shadow. It's not the real fulfillment, it's a shadow. Because I want to read you Joel 2. Joel says, it will come about after this. And if you read what Joel is talking about there in context, the whole context is after the Messianic kingdom is established. After Yeshua comes back. And Joel says, it will come about after this that I will pour out my spirit on all mankind and your sons and daughters will prophesy and your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on the male and female servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. So the greatest outpouring of the Holy Spirit ever witnessed in the history of mankind will come after the second coming. And Paul actually says in Romans, I believe eight, I don't have a slide, but Paul actually says, if you read Paul, He says, we now only have the first fruits of the Spirit. So what we get after Yeshua comes back, the grace that we get after he comes back is the greatest outpouring of the Spirit you can even fathom. Like what we have now is like the tip of the tip of the teeny tiny tip of the iceberg. And all the nations and everyone who's saved and everyone who's gathered and all believers, we are going to be baptized in the Spirit. There's going to be miracles. There's going to be healings. 
The Spirit is often associated with music and art and architecture in the Bible. So the Spirit is going to be the engine that drives the renewal of the entire earth in the Messianic age. It's the age of the Spirit that is coming. He's going to cleanse Israel, save Israel. It's it's all of that, salvation, sanctification, renewal. And all of these outpourings that we see now. And the reason we seek the Spirit now is because we know there's a greater outpouring coming. Yeshua says, when you pray, pray, your kingdom come. So you can't really pray for anything that's not in some way in the kingdom. So we're praying for the kingdom to break in. This is what we're doing on the Feast of Weeks or Shavuot. We're praying for the kingdom to break in. We're looking forward to that day. We're setting our hope on the Holy Spirit. You know, it's not just that Yeshua comes. It's like the the age to come. It's the Spirit who comes in fullness. And so in some way, like what Peter says, I want you to fix your hope on the grace to be brought to you. This is the grace to be brought to you when you experience the fullness of the Spirit as a fully glorified, resurrected believer. And all the challenges you have in this life and the disappointments and the besetting sins and everything. Peter wants you to know there's a day coming where you will receive the Spirit of God in fullness. And you will see the greatest revivals on this earth that you can even imagine. And that is supposed to ground us right here and right now. What comes next? Feast of Trumpets. This was actually one of my favorite feasts to uh, study and unpack in the book. But there's a lot of confusion over it because of the, the rapture and the trumpet. And let me try to deconstruct a little bit of that. In Leviticus 23, it's not called the Feast of Trumpets, nor is it called Rosh Hashanah. It's actually called Zichron Teruah, which is a memorial of Teruah. A Zichron is a memorial or a remembrance. A Teruah is basically a loud sound. It could be a trumpet blast. It could be human shouting. It could be like an alarm. It could be sounded on the battlefield. It's a loud sound. So God says to Israel, in the seventh month, in the first of the seventh month, I want you to have a Zichron Teruah, a memorial of trumpet blasts and shouting, like responsive praise kind of thing. And there's nothing else really said about it except I think a couple offerings that were made. And so you wonder, well, Israel is at Mount Sinai. So what was God telling Israel to remember on the seventh month with the sound of the trumpet? The first place in the Torah where the trumpet is mentioned, where the shofar is mentioned, is in Exodus 19, when Israel is at Mount Sinai. Remember, Moses tells them, you're going to hear the trumpet blast, and Israel hears the trumpet, and God is descending on the mountain in like a fiery lightning storm, and they hear the trumpet blast, and they come to the mountain, and Moses goes up, the trumpet, the trumpet. So what he's telling them in Leviticus 23, when he says, have a a memorial of trumpet blast, of teruah, he's telling them, Remember the Sinai encounter. This is the time to memorialize the Sinai encounter and to recommit to walking with the Lord. But also, in the Hebrew Bible, the trumpet is often used when a king is being enthroned or like a coronation ceremony, right? Have you ever seen uh, movies 
where there's a king that's coming into a city and there's a great, he's announced with a great trumpet blast and then he sits on his throne and they put the, king, the, the crown on him. I have a really cool uh, illustration in my book from the Lord of the Rings, The Return of the King, but I don't have time to read that here. But Lord of the Rings fans, it's worth the price of admission just for that, I think. <laughs> but this is what's happening at Sinai. The Lord is being enthroned as king with the sound of the trumpet at his holy mountain. And in the seventh month, he's saying, remember, I am the king who is enthroned. I am your sovereign. I gave you my laws. Recommit to walking with me. Blow the trumpet. Remember Sinai. Shout forth with teruah, with shouting. All that the Lord has spoken to us, we will do. That was Israel's original teruah. So it's this interplay. God being enthroned as the king with the trumpet at Sinai. The nations coming. Remember, they're gathered. Feast of weeks, they're coming. Just like Israel's gathered and they're committing to walk with him. So historically, that's really what the Feast of Trumpets is. It was only much, much later, in like after the Babylonian exile, that it really became Rosh Hashanah. And I don't have time to get into all that here. I'm not against Rosh Hashanah, but prophetically, this should be the focus because... What's going to happen when Yeshua comes back? He's going to be enthroned on Mount Zion, the new Mount Sinai, as the king. And there are a number of what I would call enthronement and coronation psalms that are prevalent in the psalms. And one of my favorite is uh, Psalm 47, which is very prophetic. It says, God has ascended. We could say the Messiah because he's God in the flesh. God has ascended with a shout. The Lord with the sound of a trumpet, the shofar. So there you see the kind of teruah from Leviticus, the shofar from Exodus 19. But there he's projecting it forward. Sing praises to God. Sing praises. Sing praises to our king. Sing praises. For God is king of all the earth. Sing praises with a skillful psalm. God reigns over the nations. God sits on his holy throne. That's going to happen. The princes of the people have assembled themselves. Or, again, perfect tense probably thrown in there. The princes of the people will assemble themselves as the people of the God of Abraham. For the shields of the earth belong to God. He is highly exalted. So imagine standing there. On Mount Zion, all the nations have been gathered. And there's this great coronation ceremony for Yeshua. And someone comes and places the crown on his head, proclaims his kingship with the the sound of shouting and the shofar on Mount Zion. That's really what the Feast of Trumpets is all about. And so every year on Rosh Hashanah, every year in the seventh month, this is what we're doing. We're calling on Yeshua to come and to reign There's a great Hasidic rabbi who says, in the prayers of Rosh Hashanah, when we refer to God in terms of kingship and ruling, we are asking for an extension of the scope of his kingship until every created thing will understand you created it. Thus, the ultimate expression of the theme of kingship on Rosh Hashanah is our request that God's kingship will reach the ultimate revelation of the days of the Messiah. Feast of Trumpets is a dress rehearsal for the Messiah's coronation ceremony on Mount Zion. And Feast of Trumpets every year is God saying to you, 
get ready and fix your hope on this. Fix your hope on the true king. Whatever's going to happen in politics, don't you just love how politicians always do what they say and always exceed your expectations? They say one thing and they go so far above and beyond. They did it finally in the House and the Senate. They finally ushered in the kingdom. (laughs) No, it doesn't work like that. But there is a kingdom coming. And I want your life to be rooted in that. I want you to be fixed on it. doesn't mean you can't have other things you do. We all have to work and put food on the table. We all got to do the stuff. We got to follow politics. We got to volunteer. We got to be involved. Who knows? Maybe God gives us a window of grace. I'm not against that. But it's like, what are you, as Peter says, like, what are you fixated on? I think about this stuff almost every single day. And it has helped me immensely in a lot of trials and struggles in my own life. And I want to wrap up by talking about the Day of Atonement and the Feast of Tabernacles. I, uh, I'll kind of try to group these together for sake of time. And uh, we can cover whatever else you guys uh, are curious about in the Bible study. But if you follow this sequence, Passover, Feast of Weeks, Trumpets, You come to the Day of Atonement and the Feast of Tabernacles. And really what the Day of Atonement was, we often think about atonement in terms of salvation, like I need atonement because I don't want to go to hell, so I need to be saved. And there's there's nothing wrong with that. And in the book of Hebrews, those applications are definitely made. But in Leviticus, when it talks about atonement for the people and the sanctuary, really what it's saying is that On the Day of Atonement, the sacred space for God's house had to be cleansed. So the reason the priest, the high priest, goes into the Holy of Holies first and then comes progressively out is because the place of God's throne in the sanctuary was basically being cleansed. The word atonement basically just means purged. So when the Israelites celebrated the Day of Atonement, they were thinking more in terms of Atonement has to be made because God is holy. He's separate. He's other. He's otherworldly. He's this heavenly being who has come down to dwell among us. That's what he said in Exodus. I want to dwell among you. But there's a sense in which God can't mix with sin and uncleanness. So then you get in Leviticus all these clean and unclean laws related to the sanctuary because it's making a demarcation. And then you have sacrifices that make things clean. And then on the Day of Atonement... The house is fully cleansed so that God's presence can stay there. So it's a sense in which God's presence in his house, in his sanctuary, uh, it's like the house is cleaned. And so when you look at that and you're like, okay, the day of atonement, Yeshua comes back, all of these things point forward to the future. A lot of people kind of connect the day of atonement to the salvation of Israel. But the Day of Atonement was never really about that or the redemption of Israel. Passover was always more about the redemption of Israel or what we think about salvation. When you look at prophetically, the Day of Atonement is pointing forward to the time when the earth and the land of Israel and the place on Mount Zion will be cleansed and cleaned after all these destructive wars and everything of the the tribulation. The place of God's sanctuary is cleansed. And the people are cleansed. In Ezekiel 36, he says, I will take you out of the nations 
I will gather you from all countries and bring you back into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. And he's using there the exact language from uh, the Leviticus, I think, 16, 17, Day of Atonement. And then I didn't put it in the slides, but in Ezekiel 39, Ezekiel talks about the land of Israel being cleansed after the battle of Armageddon, which is called the battle of Gog and Magog in Ezekiel 38 and 39. I go all into that in my first book, The Passover King. But the point is, after this final battle and this series of events, the land is going to have to be cleansed. And the people are going to have to be cleansed and prepared so that God's glory, the full manifest glory of God the Father can dwell in his sanctuary during the Messianic age, which brings us to the Feast of Tabernacles. Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And I won't go too much into the Feast of Tabernacles here, but it's, the Feast of Tabernacles is all about the joy that you experience in God's presence. So that's why it's really the culmination. It's the seventh feast in the seventh month that takes place for seven days. So you get a nice little 777 there implying completion, that it's, it's kind of the end goal of God's entire redemptive plan is the fulfillment of the Feast of Tabernacles. When not only Yeshua comes, not only the Holy Spirit comes, but the glory of God the Father. If you read in Ezekiel, he talks about seeing the glory of God, and he's not talking about a visible manifestation of Yeshua. There's a lot of confusion over this, this idea that you know people think God the Father is invisible and you can't see him. Biblically, it's not actually true. He, is a, he, he exists in a manifest form. You see this in Daniel 7. Daniel saw the Son of Man and the Ancient of Days. You see this in Revelation. He see, John sees the Lamb, and he sees God on his throne. So the Feast of Tabernacles is pointing to the time with the manifest glory. Go read Ezekiel chapter 1 and look at what Ezekiel saw. And, in, and I, I believe it's Ezekiel 43. He says, this is what's coming back. It's the glory of God the Father dwelling in his temple among his people. It's the full restoration of the Garden of Eden and beyond. And so our experience with God in the millennium, the messianic age, the future kingdom, it's going to be fully Trinitarian, you could say. You know, God is going to bring us fully into the most dynamic relationship with his son, with the Holy Spirit, with himself as the Father. And so really what we are doing, and the burden of my heart is trying to move the discussion on the feast and the celebration of the feast more in this direction because I believe it's highly practical in terms of what the Lord wants to do. It's not just like a theological discussion we're having here. I believe that we're supposed to set up the feast as kind of like pillars, kind of like gateways to the kingdom. And through the feast, we're supposed to be bringing people into the knowledge of Yeshua, the full knowledge of the kingdom, the full knowledge of God's prophetic plan, which is only going to become more and more relevant as we draw closer and closer to the return of the Lord. And it's kind of like in the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, you know, where the kids, they're living in England in World War II, and they find this wardrobe, and it's a portal to Narnia. 
right? We all know the Chronicles of Narnia here, right? I'm, I know I'm in good company there. So they find this portal to Narnia, and it's this other world of magic and fantasy and talking animals. But there's a sense in which C.S. Lewis, the author, presents Narnia almost as like more real. And the, the children who go there, they find their real identity there in Narnia. And there's this, this line in the uh, Voyage of the Dawn Treader where Aslan, who kind of re- uh, represents God and Yeshua, the lion, he's telling uh, Edmund and Lucy that they can't go back to Narnia, that their time has kind of expired. But he says, this was the very reason why you were brought to Narnia, that by knowing me there for a little while, you, by knowing me here, I'm sorry, by knowing me here for a little while in Narnia, you may know me better there when you go back to England where you live. So by knowing me here in Narnia, this fantasy world, I need you to know me there so you can know me better back there in like the real world. And that's really what the feasts are about. The feasts are God saying to us, I need you to know me in the kingdom. I need you to know me as I will be in the kingdom. I need you to know what your life will be in the kingdom. I need you to know what's happening when Yeshua returns. Because in some mystical, mysterious way, having a grounding in that kingdom, just like the children did in Narnia, having that grounding there, it helps us so much here. And so, I think Peter knew exactly what he was saying when he said, fix your hope on this. This is the grace to be brought to us at the revelation of Yeshua, the Messiah. And uh, one more shameless plug for the book. I released it on Wednesday. And uh, if you want to get the book, this is like an early proof copy. I don't have any to sell, but it would really help me if you want it, if you wanted to buy it tonight or tomorrow or Monday, because the way everything works online and Amazon and all that, uh, it helps if more people buy at the same time. It really helps to boost me so they, it gets promoted more. And uh, you can just go to Amazon and find it there. Type in the biblical feast and the return of Jesus, uh, Travis Snow. Uh, you can also go to my website, shilohmedia.org. I'll have more teachings and things coming out. And I'm on Twitter and Instagram and YouTube at Travis M. Snow. But uh, it's been a real uh, privilege and pleasure to share this. I hope you are encouraged. And please bring your questions, comments, concerns, uh, rotten vegetables to throw to the uh, Bible study later. Uh, Shabbat Shalom. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that your kingdom would come, Lord. We pray, Lord, that you would reign over us, reign in our lives, center us on the reality and the hope of your future kingdom, and equip us, Lord, through that knowledge for your service. B'Shem Yeshua Meshecheinu, in the name of Yeshua, our Messiah. Amen.